Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hey, everybody. You have to check out this amazing new true crime podcast. It's called 22 Hours, an American Nightmare. It's about a murder that took place in Washington, D.C. A family and their housekeeper were held hostage for 19 hours before being killed when the murderers set their mansion on fire. You'll be shocked by what they went through during those 19 hours, and you won't believe how they found the guy. Won't ruin the ending, but all I have to say is pizza crust. I'm telling you, it's awesome. Podcast One teamed up with award-winning journalists from news giant WTOP to put this story together, and the podcast is great. Download 22 Hours in American Nightmare now on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One with new episodes every Monday. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Weiss of The Athletic, and we had just a massive amount of stuff to talk about, from crowning a new NBA champion, the Toronto Raptors, to Saturday's gargantuan Anthony Davis mega deal, to Jared's fascinating news-breaking uh, a little while back uh, with Kemba Walker, the two of them actually, he interviewed him in Japan. And so I, I wanted to learn the backstory of that and, and how everything happened and his interpretation of a story that has really been big NBA news since it since he reported it for The Athletic. And really fun conversation brought to you by Yahoo Daily Fantasy. Go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and use the pod 25 promo code for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. CBS Sports HQ, you can download the CBS Sports app on basically any of your streaming devices and you can check it out, which is awesome. BetOnline.ag, use the podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. And TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. Awesome conversation. Hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Can we not talk about the NBA Finals, please? You know, I, 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 we, 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 it's this. I feel so badly for the Toronto Raptors in certain ways. Obviously, they're NBA champions. Things are working out super well for them. That it got superseded so quickly. And so I am taking the prerogative. The show has my name in it, at least in the subheading. To to start there, to start with the Toronto Raptors as the NBA champions and the playoffs more broadly. And... I'm I'm interested. We'll start this in a more open-ended way, and I'm sure we'll get into some more specifics. What what which are what your takeaways are from these playoffs at large? I mean, I I can't believe it's only been like 40 years since the finals ended. It feels like it's been several. But the the big thing 
besides the whole Warriors, Dynasty Overbring narrative and all that kind of stuff, was, I think from an exit standpoint, the thing that interested me the most about this finals was that, and really the entire playoff run, was that Toronto, I really feel like won for the most part by running just high pick and roll offense. And we haven't seen a team in a while. It feels like it's been several years or probably, I mean, maybe a decade since we had a team that really got so much of their offense, especially in crunch time, from hitting the roll man on the pick and roll. It's just been a long time since we've had that. And while I know the league has become more pick and roll heavy, I feel like it's generally more pick and roll heavy to try to get the ball handler a shot or to pop four or three for the roll man. And so to have just a much more traditional pick and roll right down the middle really tear the really tear the defense apart this consistently, where, frankly, I didn't think Toronto made that many adjustments to the way that they were doing it over the course of the finals, and yet Golden State never really came that close to shutting it down. And so I'm wondering if this is going to change strategy or people are just going to think that this is a lot more effective and is this going to change how the league is using a lot of these big men that are coming into the That is an interesting point, and it's something I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about, but it's definitely a fair, a fair thing to argue. And what I what I think is, is a takeaway from that is, as an additional point, is that the Raptors, I think it's important that they found success on that with two other things. One was they generally had a well-spaced floor, so that makes life a lot easier finding the role man and, and everything else. And then the other part is that they were doing those roles with players that were still capable as pop players. So now Serge Ibaka doesn't often go for threes. He, he can do for mid-rangers, depending on how they structure their offense. Marcus Ole can get some threes. And the Raptors found success at various series with those sorts of things. But I, I'm interested in, in that idea that I think the pick and roll works better in the modern NBA. Obviously, the space for it. That's not even something we need to discuss. We all know that. But with a player who is capable, I, I kind of call it a dual threat big, a player who you have to respect their ability to pop because then it just makes life harder on the defense. Oh, for sure. And, I mean, Marcus, I felt, felt like Marcus Soule probably ran the best out of anyone because he really is that true dual threat. And he's almost a triple threat in that not only can he either pop or he can roll all the way to the rim, but he can also be that short roll guy that's able to distribute from the free throw line when you hit him early in the pick and roll. So he can do pretty much everything on the pick and roll at an above average, right? Actually, probably way above average level. And so, I mean, obviously that's just simply a well-rounded big, obviously. But it seems like, in you know, the, the Warriors have been doing this to Draymond to a degree for a while now, so it isn't that different than what the Warriors are doing. But to be able to do it, with, I think, with lesser players shows that, you know, teams that can just have a depth good bigs like the like Toronto has could probably make it really effective just throughout an entire uh, series instead of just being able to do it with specific personalities. Well, and that ties in with something that I've been thinking about more since the finals ended, which is that on my way back from Oracle, I actually listened to the podcast that Nate and I did for Dunked On right after the Kawhi Leonard trade. And listening to it, something that amused me was how little we talked about Pascal Siakam. And the reason for that is, is a, good, a good demonstration of why he's this year's most improved player is that what I mean he was an integral part of a championship team and yet a year ago when they made that trade he was you know I mean he was somebody we considered of like oh look at all the guys they have but not somebody that we thought was going to be there and while Siakam is not perfect and you know his, his limitations as a like a confident jump shooter certainly were apparent in the finals in certain other series his defensive capability was extremely important in the finals. And it was a reminder that, you know, just having lots of options have, and the idea that players develop over time, especially if they, if they work hard and if they have the right kind of the right bones to make it work. And 
Siakam, you know, he hit fit all of that. So while he's not, you know, a center, at least in, in most iterations of Raptors lineups, he was another big who could help protect the rim, make life harder on drivers, while still doing a lot of the kind of quote-unquote small guy things. He could handle the ball, pushes the ball in transition with or without the ball. And I thought that made life more manageable for their bigs. Yeah, and I definitely see him being a center down the line, uh, for sure. I mean, he could play really any of those big positions. But he was a great example of someone who improved throughout the year. He wasn't just the most improved player coming into the season. I thought he, he really learned team defense over the course of the season. And his defense was just so much better leading into the playoffs and during the playoffs, especially like in the first couple rounds. He was just smoking everybody out there. He would just smother a guy at one end of the court, be able to then run to the other side of the court to contest a shot. He was defending at a level that I hadn't even seen from him earlier in the year, and I thought he was already a great defender. So, I mean, consistency obviously is going to be something that just comes with age for him, but the sky's the limit on his two-way potential. I think he's probably going to end up being the best defender in the NBA at a certain point. It's possible. I, I like somebody who, who, you know, a little bit of a different skill set for like a best in the league standpoint, but there is a ra- there is a rationale behind what you're saying. And I, I think what people could take away from Siakam and his development is that you, I, I was skeptical of Siakam in the playoffs, partially because I worried about the jump shot and everything else, but also partially because... Players who get a lot of their competitive advantage, not all of it, Siakam's an amazing basketball player, but players who get a lot of their competitive advantage from just having a way better motor than everybody else, oftentimes those players fall off in the playoffs because they're trying harder in the regular season than the average opponent, and that margin narrows just because everybody else is working harder than they usually do. And I think what Siakam serves as a reminder of is that, yeah, that that is true. I, I don't I, I don't doubt like I'm not reevaluating that whole analysis point of like playoffs and effort and calibrating, but that m- margin matters a little bit less when the player you're talking about is also a really good athlete. You know, so it's not, you know, a player who that's the only reason they're successful. Yeah, I mean, you're making a great point there. And to his credit, I think that he also made a commensurate leap in his energy level in the playoffs. Or maybe it's his focus got better. So I think he was able to kind of meet the the aggregate in his own way. And for him, I guess the combination is how do you combine being smart and high-intensity energy guy? Because, I mean, he gets so many of his baskets at kind of just like attacking full speed, going away from the hoop and being able to kind of jump in at the last second and draw contact or finish off the backboard. And teams are going to learn how to defend that better. And it's not a, it's like, it's a pretty wild shot. So he's going to have to learn how to be kind of more traditional, more efficient in the way that he gets to the rim. And so I think I'll figure that out over time. But as he starts to understand how to go balls to the wall, but then also be able to pace himself to you know, keep everybody off balance, I think that's when he starts to unlock some of the skills in his game that I think are there that a lot of people don't seem to believe are probably there. Yeah, and something else I was thinking about in terms of takeaways from these playoffs is that for years I have been lauding and 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 trying to get people to to understand the value of Kyrie Irving's ability to get a shot off against even great defenders. And Kawhi Leonard, you know, he he's does it a different way, partially because he's just so physically strong that he can pull it off. But he's working his way into that conversation, and I think that's one point that I want to make. I, actually, I'll save the other one until after you respond to this one. Um, so, yeah, I agree. <laughs> you can make your other point. So, so the other one is I've broadly defined defense and offense. I think 
basketball in general is really not only about the choices that it that a team individuals make but also about the choices that you force an opponent into and so the idea basically being that defense and offense are trying to give an opponent a bad series of options and then they'll 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 likely choose a good one among those options and what I was thinking about related to that is this is a parallel between Kawhi Leonard and Steph Curry is that in both circumstances, partially in the Warriors' case due to personnel, and then in Kawhi's case because he was so amazing in various series, both players, their dominance forced opponents to go after a different approach where they were conceding better shots to teammates because they basically decided that was a superior option to letting that player get off. And I think that it's underappreciated, maybe not among, you know, like necessarily in our community, though I do think in certain circles it is, but the value of forcing those kinds of changes because yeah I mean it's true that Steph Curry you know he didn't have a great scoring performance in every game or anything like that but there is an intense value to being the organizational focus of an opponent so much so that you're creating these opportunities for other people now it can be because your teammates are so bad that that's still a good choice but I do think that there's that that's incredibly valuable yeah I mean the Raptors were making it rain. All the supporting guys were, and they were still sending high traps at Kawhi late in the game because they were just so desperate to get the ball out of his hands. And, I mean, a lot of the reason why the Raptors were, I guess, in that offense we were talking about earlier was just because there was so much pressure on Kawhi, and they had to go to that to those kind of plays and keep Kawhi off to the wing at times. But I think what Kawhi's really done that's kind of brought him to this level is that there's not a good direction to shade him anymore. And there's still a lot of great scores in the NBA that they're not amped be dexterous enough and they don't have the footwork down enough that you can that if they go to their off ball hand they're still going to be able to get into their same you know, arsenal of shots that they can get going to their own strong side and Kawhi seems to have passed that point which you know is usually means that you're you know a first or second I guess you're just an all NBA player at that point usually um, but he he seems that he can now go to like a step back jumper going he can obviously pull up. He's amazing at pulling up really quickly for three. Something I'll give uh, Coach Nick, my co-host at Bebop Breakdown, credit for is he talks a lot about for um, for right-handed shooters trying to go right-left into your shot with the feet. So instead of the usual thing where you use your off foot to kind of step into the shot and bring the ball side with you forward, that Kawhi has the ability to be like in the middle of a dribble move and just use his off foot to stop himself. So it's like he's stopping short, but he can still go into the shot. And that's a really difficult balance thing. So with him, you know, teams want to, defenders want to be able to give him a little bit of space so that they don't let him get by. But when they do, he's able to stop short in a way that almost probably nobody else in the league really can except bring a step. Yeah, I was thinking of a play, I, I'm i going to guess it was in Game 5, might have been in Game 4 of the series, where Clay was on Kawhi, and Kawhi just basically got a mid-ranger out of nowhere because Clay expected a certain move, and because Kawhi was able to stop short, even though the lane was pretty well packed, he was able to get a wide-open jump shot, and... There, there is another interesting thread of these playoffs of the idea of a functional contest, you know, like just because a guy is near you doesn't mean that that guy is is really affecting your shot. And I thought that Kawhi's ability to to get that mid ranger and in, in basically less space with less clearance than most guys is a really important development. And I want to see if other guys can, you know, they can't necessarily match his physical strength, but they can get some of that footwork stuff right and, and add that as a component of their game. Yeah, you're probably thinking of a drive in 
had kind of like probably three minutes left in the fourth quarter or somewhere late in the fourth quarter. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that was the, I think that was the exact play that we were talking. So uh, that one really stood out. I'm sure he did it a few other times in the series. But it looked, when you watch it and you kind of like slow it down and pay attention to what he's doing with his feet, you recognize how awkward that is. And if you go out there and try it on the court, it's going to feel you're probably going to trip over yourself the first time you try it. I don't mean you specifically. I mean, obviously, you've never missed a shot here, but the generic audience that's listening. Um, but uh, it, it's it's just the kind of stuff that he's just, it's, I think when we talk about him being robotic on the court, it's like, he just, it doesn't seem like the normal effects of balance and momentum and inertia and all that kind of stuff that affects most people's lives. And I guess it's a credit to, you know, we talk about strength all the time, but like with him, it's that his legs and his core are so unbelievably strong that, you know, he, he can be going full speed and stop and it doesn't, because he's just so powerful in those areas, he can kind of just like take a big stop with one foot and really kind of push all of his momentum the other direction. While most guys, the momentum would kind of still be carrying forward. It just doesn't seem to really affect them. And then going to the contest part, his the set point on his jump shot is so high up there that not only is he tall and not only does he have really long arms, but the ball is just so high up. It's really hard for most defenders that are even remotely fast enough to keep up with them to have the reaction time and the length to be able to get near them. I'm sure blocking the eyes does bother a lot of shooters, but most shooters that are good shooters, they already kind of have the rim locked in where the contest even gets there and they don't really need to see it. The contest for a lot of guys is about just trying to affect, make them feel like they can't follow through and shoot the ball in the arc that they want to and make them try to adjust the arc. That's a great point. And it ties in with something that I've I've been really fascinated with over the course of this season, which is that I, I've been a big believer in Kawhi for years now, and you know the the him being in the best player in the world conversation a couple of years ago, I think was well founded. And my optimistic view of his recovery from this quad tendinopathy was that he would basically just be the same guy he was before. And what's been so interesting is that he isn't. I think that Leonard's defense, you know, he was the defensive player of the year previously. I mean, amazing one-on-one defender, but then also had the value as a help defender. To me, he's worse as an as an individual man, like shutdown, like the shutdown corner equivalent now than he was then. But his offensive game is more dominant. I think there's more depth to his game there. And then he's become a more a more high, reliable is unfair because he was reliable before too, but he's become a more effective help defender. So even though he's taken that step back individually, and I don't think he's as good a defender as he was before, he's still this intensely valuable, almost irreplaceable player. Do you think the individual defense is a physical thing? That he still isn't 100% and that he just needs to either save it a little bit at some point or just for everything that we're saying about what he can do on offense, when he's in control, his reaction speed against somebody else he's trying to read isn't quite where it was it's a really good question. I think it's a little bit of both. I also would add in there, I think this is kind of underpinning both of those, that he's taking on such a big offensive workload that it's just hard to, you know, like it, this has been a point that's brought up, and I think correctly for James Harden and various other players in the recent past. LeBron is, a re, is an example of this now that he's not the same, like, you know, superhuman that he was in his late 20s and early 30s. That he, you know, it's too hard to burn the candle at both ends to the extent that Kawhi would have to to be that guy. But I also think that there are some limitations there, especially when he was like defending Steph Curry. I think you got a reminder of that that he's, you know, he's just not at that same at same level. But also, I think that some of the skill development, you know, guys getting better jump shots, taking those taking those looks from 30, 31 feet. 
that's a wrinkle that wasn't really as there as much when he did that. That's a more recent development. And so it has changed. You know, it's been a few years since Kawhi's been at that defensive player of the year level. And so those guys are up. They're harder for him to handle than some of the players that were out there before who were more in his physical wheelhouse. You know, those powerhouse wings, those type of players. And they're, those players still exist, obviously. But the, you know, the, the guards like Steph Curry, like Damian Lillard, those have come more into vogue. And I think those would have been harder for him back in the day than some of what the things he did super well. That's really interesting, Steve. I I figured it was mostly just the, you know, energy expenditure argument, but that actually is a really interesting argument. I hadn't really thought of more. And I think this was an issue for pretty much all, you know, wings under, you know, between like six five and six eight is that a lot of the time you're just gonna be guarding you're gonna be guarding a smaller and quicker guy. And that's probably the big adjustment that most of these guys have to make. Not to mention the rule changes have limited your ability to use your hand to That's a great point. You know, direct the ball handler or direct somebody off ball. And Kawhi was always great at being able to really tug and stiff arm and all the little Tinky stuff that they were calling a lot more this year. Yeah, I think that's a, the 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 physical contact is is a really important thing because it's also changed the way that some of these guys have to defend and and that's interesting and still plenty to talk about with Jared Weiss. But first, a message from Yahoo Daily Fantasy. Even with the NBA and NHL playoffs concluded now, both finals ended this week. It is still a great time to be a sports fan. Major League Baseball is really picking up. Golf just had the U.S. Open. I was lucky enough to attend on Saturday. And if you want to get closer to the action, Yahoo Daily Fantasy is for you. They offer single-day and week-long contests, so you can pick a new team every day. And Yahoo Daily Fantasy also has the lowest management fees across the industry. Don't play with other sites that charge high fees just to play, because Yahoo's lower fees mean more prizes for you, the players, to win. To get started, go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy, find the contest that's right for you, and use the promo code POD25 for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. You can try a 50-50 contest where the top half of the field wins, or you can try Yahoo's innovative quick match feature where they will pair you with another player of your skill level. You can play a quick match contest for free or for cash, but the best part is there is no management fee, so you keep 100% of your winnings. Alternatively, you can play for larger prizes and bigger bragging rights in guaranteed prize pool contests. But no matter what you want to try, use the promo code POD25 for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit and go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy to start playing today. The sooner you get to playing, the sooner you can get to winning. Also, I have a message from CBS Sports HQ. If you miss when sports networks just covered news and highlights without the yelling and fake debates, check out CBS HQ. It is the free 24-hour sports network that is built for fans like you and me. It's a great way to get tons of highlights, analysis, and instant game reactions. Everything that matters about the game without diving into political and social issues like on other sports networks. And if you enjoy placing bets or competing against your friends in a fantasy league, their experts are always dishing out top picks. So check out CBS Sports HQ. It is always on, and importantly, it's always free. No need to pay a subscription fee or have an expensive cable package. Just download the CBS Sports app on your phone, Fire TV, Roku, or Apple TV to start watching today. I don't want to dwell on it a ton, partially because this is a weird kind of wiggle room space for it, but how, like, so 
we're now, you know, closer to a week out of the consecutive game injuries season long, it sounds like, or close to it for Clay Thompson and for Kevin Durant. How, how are you, wait, what's your thought process now at, you know, on, on, how not not necessarily how that affects the Warriors for next year, but you know, like for free agency, how d- does it affect the way that you think about the Raptors championship? Like the more of those sorts of things rather than like what contract are they going to get offered? Um, no, because I mean, if you look at the first Warriors title, they got it against LeBron and Matthew Delavidova. So you know, sometimes you win a title because the other team is a worthy adversary, and then injuries happen. So. I, this doesn't this doesn't put an asterisk on the Raptors uh, for me at all, and mostly, honestly, mostly because you know, while obviously Katie and Clay uh, getting hurt, especially Katie getting hurt, and Cousins and Looney being hurt, obviously plays a huge role in this. But I thought it was the Warriors' defense that was the biggest issue, not their offense. Uh, and so, you know, if KD was healthy, I'm sure the Warriors' defense would have been way way better because the Warriors' biggest vulnerability was just that they kept getting exposed underneath the rim because they were having so much trouble figuring out how to rotate from helping to the shooters to getting in position during pick and roll and I think having both Katie and Draymond out there where you have two really good rim protectors out there probably would have solved a lot of their issue but whatever that's that's uh you know obviously it was not a solvable problem for them but so I I look at this as basically that the entire league should see I, they should have came into last year thinking maybe something's going to go wrong with the Warriors and we might as well take a shot now but now they have to go the door's wide open even if the Lakers, who just got AD, are able to get a third star to put with them, as great as that team is, there is a lot of things that they have to work out to figure out each other. And I would definitely be going all in right now if I'm a team that thinks I can put a contender together. Uh, obviously, Toronto should be trying to keep everything together. If I'm Milwaukee, I'd probably jump into the tax and keep this squad together that they have right now, or at least keep Brogdon and Middleton and really try to go for it, because I think it's, it should be wide open next year. It definitely could be. And I... I think it's an interesting challenge for some of these front offices because it isn't just a one-off commitment for most of them. You know, like you, you brought it Milwaukee, and I agree with you. First of all, a team that good, yes, they, they fell short this year, but they're an amazing team. They were the league's best team in the regular season. They can be awesome in the playoffs again, like they were in the, in the first two rounds. But what I, I think is is important to consider with all of this is that idea of the multi-year commitment. So the Bucks are a good example of this. You know, basically, they can getting into the tax for the 1920 season is is justified. And, and I would say it's justified to do it long term. But it is a little bit of a different thing in terms of sticker shock for an ownership group, especially if they haven't paid the tax before, to not only say, okay, we're a tax team next year, but in, unless they're very optimistic in terms of cap growth and all those other things, for some of these teams to be saying, okay, well, we're also going to be in it for years to come. And that is a, it's a different commitment. I mean, that's something, I'm guessing that was a part of the issue with Houston paying the tax was that Tillman Fertitta probably saw it as, okay, if we pay it this year, then that's just who we are now. And so they they made the decision to go under last year, partially due to opportunity, but that's not necessarily the, the healthiest way of thinking about it. Well, I mean, I guess it's really hard uh, from an owner's perspective to figure out how you want to do this, but it seems like most owners agree that they only want to enter the tax and commit to the tax if they think that this is an arc towards a championship. And, I mean, it seems like every single organization except for, I guess, OKC, uh, well, Golden State is a clear contender, but like OKC wasn't Washington dancing with the tax before they started stripping down. Um, it seems like there's any of the teams that commit to the tax 
that don't think they have a very clear leap forward to the championship tend to kind of get capped with the second round and then kind of fall apart from there. And it takes them too long to, you know, to be able to get themselves out of that mess. So I understand partially why Houston wanted to do it, but I think Houston was, was too close to winning the title for them to make that move. So I, I don't think for T to be the right decision there. But with Milwaukee, it's a, it's a really tough call for that ownership group. And I think that ownership group seems to be committed to probably doing at least a three-year cycle of the tax. Um, and then, of course, they're going to have to give, they're going to have to uh, lock in Giannis, and that's going to probably balloon it anyway right in the future a few years down the road. But this seems like the moment to do it, especially because they got to sell Giannis on the idea of having, a, you know, of staying because he can thinks he can win a title in Milwaukee and they're getting I mean the momentum is pushing them so hard towards it right now I feel like this is that moment that you gotta seize my hope is that if their ownership group was not willing to do it before first of all I hope that they would have but that this does push them to make the right decision and they do face the challenge that not every decision involved in this offseason is their willingness to pay you know Maybe Chris Middleton or Miritich or Brooke Lopez, not Brogdon because he's restricted. Those guys just want something else. I don't really expect that, at least with everybody but Miritich. Now, getting getting in a DNP CD in the last game of your team season is a really tough way to get a guy to want to resign. But I, I think with, with Lopez, he also faces something that Middleton does not, which is variability in terms of his offers around the league. Now, Middleton, I assume he's going to get you know a, a four-year max offer from somebody, and he can decide for himself how he values a four-year max offer versus a fifth-year, either at max or near max from the Bucks. That's his own decision to make. But with Lopez, there are easy arguments to make in a lot of different directions in terms of how much he should make, not just for one year, but moving forward. Well, I, I'm driving, so I can't look up his age, but he's got to be around 30 at this point, right? Yeah. So Lopez, he he actually turned 31 on April 1st, so he'll play most of next season at 31. I don't know if that's an April Fool's joke, but I believe you. So, yeah, so if he wants, I mean, I, I don't think he's going to get four years, but three years, I mean, though, I guess the big advantage is that as long as his shooting holds up, his offensive game last year was almost entirely just picking up shooting or spreading the floor as a spotted guy. So it's not like he needs to continue to be a dominant force on the block for him to present present value there. As long as he can still shoot and as long as he can defend the pick and roll, I feel like he covers pretty much the breadth of what they need out of him and what the salary that he's earning would really be worth. So I, I think that it would be worth a three-year deal with him. Um, but I mean, I understand Miritich being a major question mark there. I mean, Miritich has frankly never consistently played well, and I feel like they put him in positions that were pretty comparable to what he was doing before. So I would definitely understand that viewpoint of thinking, like, we just don't want to pay market value for someone who isn't really contributing nearly as much as we need them to, but you can probably get someone who's contributing at that level with their MLE. Well, the problem there is that they need to use the MLE on Brook Lopez because Lopez, because Lopez, the, the non-bird rights will be insufficient for him. So the idea with Miritich is basically, it's not that it's free because especially if they go into the tax, it could be expensive, but that it's, he, he adds depth for them. And also with Miritich, there's variability in terms of his market too. So it's possible if teams just aren't as interested in him as I would be, that it becomes more palatable. You know, like I think Miritich is a much better player overall than Ersan Ilyasova. And yeah, Ilyasova has the history with Budenholzer and everything else. But the further apart those guys' contract values are, especially because Ilyasova is already on a deal for 1920 and then has a non-guarantee for the following year. 
that it becomes less tenable for the Bucks to bring him back. But also, he's just the least he's the least important part of that. Even though I really like him. Yeah, but like again, it's uh, if you can get Ilyasova for super cheap, and while I agree that Mir is better, as far as who actually was out there and doing their thing, I mean, you got to keep the guy that's actually producing. I I think that's that's a fair a fair point, and it, you know they might not be mutually exclusive, but I think it's kind of looking more in that direction, even with or without the tax, just because. And Mirtich, as I said, unrestricted free agents can do whatever they want, so. He might just want a different opportunity. He's already moved around the league a couple times. That's going to be interesting to watch. Still more to talk about with Jared Weiss, but first a message from betonline.ag. We're now in mid-June, and while basketball and hockey are now done for at least for a little while, there's still plenty going on in the world of sports, and a great way to engage with it is with betonline.ag. The way you get started there is you sign up for an account at betonline.ag and use the promo code PODCAST1 and you get a 50% welcome bonus. Also helps that tells them you came from us, which is fantastic. And baseball still going full steam. A lot of fun stuff in international sports, depending on what you're interested in. Golf going on, US Open just finished. And you can find all of that and much more on betonline.ag. You can also look at some interesting future stuff if you want to stay more engaged in basketball. There's some really interesting action that is available there. So you don't need to sit on the sidelines anymore. Get in on the action and you can make sure that if you go to betonline.ag and open an account, you use the podcast one promo code for that 50% welcome bonus. And another way you can check it out, you can text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669. You get that same 50% welcome bonus. Don't miss out on any of the action at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Also have a message from TrueCar. 60 seconds. That is exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with TrueCar. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a true cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to TrueCar and simply enter your license plate number, watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you will get an accurate true cash offer from a local TrueCar certified dealer. It is that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they'll check out w- check out your car with you together. You can ask questions, get the answers you need so there are no surprises. Then, simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So, when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. Let's move on to the news of the weekend, which is uh, the Anthony Davis trade. I, I, I think that there are, there are a, a slew of different angles here. I've already recorded one like two hour long podcast on this. This will not be a two hour long podcast on the Anthony Davis trade. But because I already did that, I feel like I might as well start this by opening the floor to you and just saying like, how, how are you walking away from 24 hours after this news? Oh man, well, I, I'm uniquely impacted in that the team that I cover and their future kind of just got potentially, dis- uh, not, well not destroyed, but severely altered in a negative way. So it definitely changes the expectations of what I'm going to be covering this couple of years. But uh, I think that when the news first came out and we didn't have all the detail on the pick swaps and all that, we looked at this as like, okay, well, I guess three first round picks instead of Kyle Kuzma for probably half of the league is a better haul. And so that's actually not so bad. And that means that the Celtics just weren't willing to really include Tatum or pay anything. Um, and then when you see the pick swaps, swaps come in, you just go, holy crap, they, this is like the uh, the Celtics' Nets trade all over again. 
except the guys that are being sent out along with the picks actually are valuable future pieces as opposed to like Chris Humphreys and Gerald Wallace and Marshawn Brooks, I think. I'm trying to remember who else was involved in that trade. But um, I mean, this is this is a home run, I guess, for David Griffin in that once he got Zion, there was no longer a need to get the single foundational piece that you would build a franchise around. It's to get, you know, a potential complimentary star, Brandon Ingram, who, as long as he gets through this injury issue, which reportedly he's going to be fine through, I mean, he still projects to be a potential all-star and a you know, potential 20.5 assist type of player, which would be really valuable next to Zion. Um, and then draft picks far out enough that it could be after the league, after LeBron is, you know, aged out of, well, I assume his prime is going to last until he's 45, but if it doesn't for some reason, he'll be an old guy at that point. AD, who knows what's going on at that point. AD could get hurt and then the franchise crumbles and then they could be in the same position at the bo- that Boston was in reaping the rewards from the Nets for so long. So Griffin has set himself up this, you know, a situation that at the minimum gives them you know, a well-rounded enough team that they can build from there and try to become a contender down the road and then has the potential to make them the ultimate juggernaut in the way the Celtics tried to pull off. And it looks like maybe failed at or maybe not. Who knows at this point? Yeah, it's I mean, there are a lot of different parts of it to unpack for the from the Pelicans perspective. I thought I thought you did a good job with with Ingram and everything else. And the idea of not having to to build a deal around that blue chip asset is an important part of this. And so they, you know, they went for a lot of different, you know, not necessarily risky plays, but just differently valued stuff. I mean, Lonzo Ball is is a talented guy, but definitely a hard player to fit in a lot of in a lot of teams. Ingram can be the same, especially because he's still a reluctant shooter. And hard is easier to fit, but then they have all these, you know, like future picks. But I think the the most striking takeaway for me is how well Griffin did to push out these obligations, because there is a distinct possibility that the Davis trade works out really well for the Lakers, and yet they still give up valuable assets to the Pelicans because they're far enough out that the Lakers, you know, do really well in the immediate, but then still have to you know, still have to get their, still have to get their work done, you know, and, and by, by that later point that, you know, they've won their, whether it's championships or their, their Western Conference trophies, whatever, I don't even know what that's called. But, and, and so they do that, and then they're still giving up, you know, lottery picks to, to the, to the Pelicans on the back end of that. I think that's a fascinating possibility. I mean, I can't believe that Polinka was willing to potentially handicap the future of a franchise like that, because, I mean, you know, they're they're going to probably try to cap themselves out now, right? So they're not going to be in, they're not going to be acquiring good young players over the next few years, and so they're probably going to be in a situation when LeBron is ready to retire, where they probably don't have that many good pieces around Anthony Davis, and they're going to really rely on those draft picks to try to rebuild during Davis's prime to have a second you know a second dynasty run with him, and they're basically handicapping themselves from doing that, and I don't really. I don't know. I mean, they're going to have to just hit a home run somewhere late in the first round and probably go for home. Actually, yeah, I guess on the swap here. So, I mean, they, they have so few picks now down the road. I just don't know what the hell they're going to do to try to keep this roster afloat as players age and they cycle through free agents. And so. They have extremely little flexibility to add talent beyond what they did. As you mentioned, you know, the, the picks that they've given up in this are are really important. They're gonna run into my good friend the Stepian rule at some point in the in the in the future. Like it makes it really hard to trade to trade things in the near term and honestly in the long term. I mean it's gonna it's gonna be a while until the Lakers really have flexibility there. But also, at least as of right now, they have very little filler salary. And remember that the players they sign for the mid level exception, that'd be the room MLE this year 
year and the probably the taxpayer MLE after this year, though it depends on a couple different things, then they're not signing those players to be salary ballast. They're signing those players because they want them to be important parts of their rotation, maybe even their starting or closing five. So it's not going to be as easy to make trades to augment this core moving forward you know even some of the some of the moves that griffin incidentally of all people made to build around lebron when he re-signed in 2014 you know a lot of those those options aren't on the table now you know like even the way they got him on shumpert that's you know like from the knicks and and basically for a song they don't have the ability to take on those kind of contracts right now yeah, and to be fair, I mean, like the Warriors, for instance, just use the Emily to acquire their fifth starter into Marcus. So, like, it's not it's, it's not, not a it's not impossible. Thing. But they're going yeah. more for their fourth starter, and maybe and and their fifth starter as well. They're like they have to build out more depth than the Warriors did, and also partially. I mean, the Warriors. That's one of the huge ways they benefited from the cap spike. Is that it's true that they got a fifth starter, you know, a couple times, and they used Pachulia. But a, they relied less on that fifth starter than a lot of teams do, and also they had some depth pieces on their bench like they were able to keep sean livingston and andre guadala guadala being a part of their closing five would because that that was kind of a it was the amount of money that they saved on steph curry clay thompson and draymond green's contracts but also the cap spike and everything else the lakers are basically building a roster out of whole cloth outside of davis kuzma lebron james and then whoever they sign with that cap space so i guess that that player shouldn't even count so really it's three guys and then you have to build out let's call it an eight-man rotation including three starters i maybe four of kuzma or you know so two starters maybe three if kuzma doesn't work out that's a lot to ask of any front office. Yeah. Well, training Muscala for Zubac seems to look even worse and worse by the day, um, even if they probably are still racing Zubac. But to, if, when you look at that remaining cap space, would you prefer to just go for Kemba Walker, Jimmy Butler, or Kyrie Irving, maybe, or Hazel Russell, maybe? Like, would you rather go for the max guy, or would you rather split that up between three different guys and try to fill out the rotation around LeBron and it's somewhat context dependent because, you know, it's who's who's willing to take your money and how much of their money are they willing to take. But broadly speaking, I would lean towards the max guy just because generally speaking, what separates out a max player, a worthy max player, is that they can do more in terms of creating. And then that means you can get more dependent talent, more limited talent surrounding them. And that's really important. You know, so if they got, let's say, Kyrie Irving or Kemba Walker, then you're, you don't need as much shot creation from every single other player you sign in the roster. So then the room mid-level becomes more useful. The minimum, minimum contracts become more viable. But if you get, let's say, and I really love Danny Green, but if you get Danny Green and you get somebody else at the, let's say Darren Collison or something at the one, well, then you're going to have to build, those guys are going to have to, you're going to put more on their shoulders. And that's going to be difficult because if they were better players, they would be getting more money. Yeah, and I agree with you. And the other reasons, just from an economic perspective, being that this is certainly less true in the new with the new cap level. But generally, max players had their values artificially deflated by the max, and they were really worth more. So the bang for your buck you're getting is just better with these max players because they're getting underpaid relative to their in the vacuum value. You know, looking at like Kemba, Kyrie, D'Angelo, I feel like the max is probably that they would all be entitled to is probably actually pretty close to the actual value. 
value they present. So you probably wouldn't be saving that value that doesn't exist in reality. But it still is probably more valuable than trying to you know pay two guys ten million or twenty million. Yeah, that that's generally the way that the way that I see it. And from the Lakers' perspective, I think what's most striking to me is that they saw the value of getting Davis now versus the possibility. It certainly wasn't a, a certainty of getting him a year from now as being so stark because they gave up a ton to make this deal happen. And based on the reporting that's out there from from Woj and from from Tanya Ganguly that it looks like the deal is not on the the timeline that would be most favorable for the Lakers. I thought part of it was that they were initially with the initial reporting was that they were paying the Pelicans to basically sacrifice some cap space and some flexibility to make it happen. But the subsequent reporting makes it seem like at least that's not how the teams are thinking of it right now. And so thus, if I'm David Griffin, if they want to try to make it more favorable to the Lakers and it would materially affect the Pelicans, then I'd be asking for something in return. Yeah, and that was the part I was just so surprised about because I assumed that this trade would be constructed to optimize the cap space that they could open up, which is why it's been surprising to see speculation about whether AD is going to waive his $4 million trade kicker. But like, AD's about to get this massive deal from the Lakers. He got exactly what he wants. It would be remarkable if he wanted to hold on to his $4 million trade kicker and prevent them from getting a max player. I mean, that I, I, I would hope he's not going to do that. It just seems selfish to the point that you're just kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Well, I mean, so, it, it is, but at the same point, it's for, I mean, to an extent, but it's $4 million that he's owned under his contract. And and the Lakers could have constructed this deal differently where he didn't have to sacrifice. You know, like that was one of the appeals of the, I'll call it the July 30th plan, was the idea that then Davis could have had his option and it would have been fine. And I mean, considering how favorable the, how, or how much the Pelicans are getting in the deal, I don't like framing it in terms of a winner and a loser because that's not rigidly true necessarily. I mean, that and, was a, that's a win-win anyway, so. Right, like you, you can think of it that way. And so like for the, for the Pelicans... I don't think the I don't think the Lakers would have had a the Pelicans would have had a leg to stand on to go oh we're not going to take this offer if we have to wait like we're going to go to somebody else and they're going to give us everything everything you guys offered you know like they're going to give us unprotected picks in other years when their best players are forty you know like that's that's not really the way this is going to work out so I thought that it was surprising uh, surprising might not be the right word let's say disheartening. That the uh, that the that the Lakers it, it seems as of what we know right now, and I reserve the right to change that based on subsequent reporting, that they didn't think about this long game because as we've just spent a lot of time talking about, the Lakers have very limited flexibility moving forward, so every million dollars really matters, and especially this five million, which is probably the difference. Not only uh, sorry, it's actually could be more than five million, it could be nine. The difference between let's say the extreme versions of this are twenty four million and thirty three. Because in that case, that goes from being enough to give a max to get a max guy to not being enough, and that's really important. Well, maybe D'Angelo Russell's willing to come for twenty four. That'd be a fun. Oh boy, yeah, that 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 would be interesting, and not only because I mean the team that you cover is integrally involved in this, but I I think that the Celtics are another important angle of this because Anthony Davis was the best player on the trade market. He is now no longer on the trade market. And I don't know, I'd have to think about who gets that honor now. Probably Bradley Beal, but I'd have to really think about it. And so now, I mean, each move can can be justified depending depending on how one feels about it with, you know, not trading for Paul George, not trading for Kawhi Leonard, all these sorts of things. And obviously they made a roll of the dice trading for Kyrie Irving. But now Boston is in a really tough spot. I'm, it seems like they're 
maybe their best option is just to kind of strip it, strip all the veterans out of the situation and go back into a rebuilding state. And they, I mean, they could even carve up a decent amount of cap space this offseason, but probably not enough for them to you know, make a run at somebody that could immediately change things for them. But there is a pathway where they could try to even go for D'Angelo Russell. And that'd be an interesting thing if they let Horford and Marcus Morris go and they try to find a team that would trade for Aaron Baines, which I doubt, although they could obviously pair a first with it. They probably could carve out enough cap space that they might be able to make a competitive run at D'Angelo Russell if Kyrie goes there and then Brooklyn is no longer trying to keep him. So that'd be an interesting situation where they get another younger point guard who is an all-star and then they at least have a core of, you know, the, the Tatum and Brown who both project to be potential all-stars with an all-star point guard. Then the future doesn't look so bad, but their most likely scenario probably is to keep Terry Rozier, which, uh, assuming Kyrie leaves for Brooklyn, which seems like it's very, very possible at this point. And Rozier, it, it depends what the, what the dollars are in the situation, but he is this extremely polarizing player who, when he starts, he plays very well, and then when he doesn't start, he plays very poorly. And so, at least last year, and so it's so hard to you know project as the real permanent starting point guard how would he actually fare. So there's a ton of uncertainty right there. I mean, they're just kind of as I'll give Jay King, uh, Jay King, my teammate at the Athletic, credit for this. They called it called it tears of uncertainty, and it's like it's like a credit default swap tranche of just like different levels and every single level it gets shakier and shakier and shakier as you look at the way this team is moving forward Ainge also faces a, a huge challenge of how to how to navigate the the commitments that might need to be made and so Horford is another great example M- maybe maybe Horford makes that easier on them by opting in they could also in that case trade him if they wanted to I mean they could go in different directions but with Rozier some of it is dependent on just what kind of an offer sheet what kind of a market bears out for him but Marcus Morris is another example of this and so how much do they value flexibility and making sure that the players that they sign are on tradable contracts moving forward? Because if they, you know, the further you get from that standard, the harder it is to adjust and to pivot moving forward. And when you consider their young players, their their asset base, you know, whether they're they're keeping those players as it looks like they will with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, and then we'll see what happens with the Memphis pick and everything else moving forward. But so, so it's it's a really challenging thing to navigate because I'm sure they want to be competitive, but be just like I talked about with Milwaukee, you know, being competitive in 2019-20 probably means making some decisions that affect the team far longer than that. You know, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about when do you enter that tax arc, and it, it, if they just try to reload with what they currently have, I don't really, I mean. Unless Hayward is back to being who he was before he got hurt, which is possible, um, I just don't see them being a real contender this year if Kyrie just walks and they run it back with this current squad. So that means that do you kind of just tread water where you are or do you just take a big step back so you can try to reload and be ready to spring forward in a couple of years? And I mean, if they at least still have a major trade chip in that Memphis pick. That Memphis pick seems to still hold tremendous value. They have, you know, they can have a couple more guys for, for one, they have Marcus Smart, who is always going to be good for trade filler. He's also kind of pre-prime still at his age, uh, his age. And he's a team that seemingly every team in the league would be happy to have. So he's a really valuable trade chip as well. So between that and the Memphis pick, they could probably execute a ton of variations of trades where they could probably try to take a lead forward still from there. So it's not like they're completely dead in the water, but I think the idea of trying to just kind of reload right now, committing to that tax plan for a couple of years and not being able to throw something else into the equation 
probably isn't going to get them that far, especially with how good, assuming Toronto is still intact and Kawhi doesn't leave the Clippers, and then assuming the Lakers are going to be able to put together a third max player. Yeah, even even though it'll be more open than before, it looks like there will be strong teams in the mix, especially if Kawhi goes back to Toronto, which, I, I don't know, it's, it seems definitely more plausible than it did a month or two ago. And Boston is going to run into the challenge at some point, I think it's more likely in 21 than in 20, of these young guys that are talented needing to get raises. So, you know, Jalen Brown right now, is without he's extension eligible this summer and fall, but he is uh, his number without an extension is $19.6 million. I don't know, I, I right now, I mean, this next season will be definitive if he doesn't sign an extension in terms of calibrating value for him. But then a year later, Jason Tatum, his salary jumps, or his cap number, let's say, jumps from $9.9 million in the final year of his rookie scale deal to a cap hold of $24.3 million, and it's far more likely that he gets a, an offer at or above that number than with Jalen Brown. And so then, it, assuming those players are still on the team at that juncture, then it, it, it does get harder to to really tear it down around those guys. They don't have a ton of other money on the books ex- unless they max Yabusele, which is possible. And and so 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 it, the the timing, the sequencing, which is something that Boston has generally done very well. I mean, that's part of how they were able to get Al Horford and part of how they were able to get Gordon Hayward at different parts in the process. Like that was really impressive. But this this is going to be pretty tricky here. And I'm I'm interested in in how Ainge and the rest of their front office tries to pull this off and whether that actually works. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Yabu's a max player yet, so they're probably going to have to wait on that a little while. But Jalen, I just don't see him taking that extension. Unless it's a max extension, I just don't see it happening. Because, right. I mean, he he had to break through last year to try to even just salvage his reputation throughout the year. Like, he, you know, things could be really opening up for him. And he might put up huge numbers and just kind of get the consistent role that he wants to be able to really showcase his game. So he has, I think, more to gain from this upcoming season to establish value than anybody else out there. Yeah. Or at least on the team he is a great example of why rookie extensions can be really challenging to agree to because basically you could see it where from a team perspective generally speaking the threshold is it needs to be team friendly we need to take out you know because we're taking on a lot of risk committing early and so it needs to be at a point where we think there's really the players leaving value on the table and that absolutely can't happen it happens all the time but from 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 Jalen Brown's perspective, that sort of a deal, like in a, to me, the 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 area of an acceptable deal to Boston is not. It, there is no Jalen Brown acceptable territory within that. And so, if there's no no middle ground for a deal, then a deal is never going to happen. And I think yeah, that's, I mean, that I think that's where he is. It just that you don't have top five picks that are getting non max extension offers ever signed. It just doesn't happen. You know, great or, and it might not even be near max. You know, I don't I don't know that they're going to offer him like like twenty two or something like that necessarily. They'd probably offer him eighteen for four right now, and he yeah. would go and he would turn to his agent who doesn't exist, and he would nod to the ghost in the room, and then he would walk away politely. Right, and it's, um, and it's very possible that Brown could you know get an offer like that, turn it down, and regret it. It has happened before, but they have to his teammate. Yeah, but it could it could happen. But I mean, you could understand it from his perspective, especially with the un, with the belief, which I think is well founded, that he will have a better opportunity in the nineteen twenty season than he than he just did. Well, the only I think the only factor of that would be whether Kyrie Irving remains. 
And I mean, hell, this year, th- this upcoming season is going to go better for Jalen Brown if he doesn't get hurt than that last year, bar none, no matter what the factor is. It's it's going to be a better situation for him. I don't think there's any question. I would I would I mean, if if the Celtics offer two million less than max per year, then I guess maybe I would do that just because it's relatively pretty much the same thing. But that's not going to happen. So it, it it's not going to Jalen should bet on himself. He's got a re- very nice future ahead of himself. The last thing that I want to discuss with you is I on for me it came out of nowhere. I guess that's a reminder that we aren't in as reliable contact because things are getting so busy in the offseason. All of a sudden, there's a, a piece posted to the Athletic about your conversation with Kemba Walker in Japan. And my my first question is just how did that happen? <laughs> I miss you too, buddy. Uh, it was it was a great confluence of events. It was the. Um, I guess the story starts in January where uh, two of my best friends were getting married in Korea and the wedding date was, I think, the 25th of May. And so I told them, oh, man, I'd love to, but the Celtics are probably going to be playing and I'm covering the team, so I don't think I can go. I'll let you know. And then, you know, the Celtics season was a disaster, but I'm thinking, you know what, it's going to be cutting it too close. It would be right in the middle of the conference finals. I'm not going to be able to pull it off. And then they started losing to Milwaukee really badly and Kyrie Irving is playing really poorly. And I'm, I'm like, I should start checking flights to Korea and see if I can pull this off. And, you know, sure enough, they got, uh, they didn't get swept, but they, they lost four in a row and the series ended really quickly. And I had like two weeks basically before I, before the trip, I'm like, hell, I'm, I'm going to Japan. So I wasted all my money. I sold all my socks and shoes so I could afford to actually fly over there because it's crazy expensive. And I went over and whenever I travel anywhere, I always check in with sources or with like PR people with teams in the league or whatever, just to see if like there's some story I could pursue. I figured there's always something interesting wherever you go. And I hit up the NBA and asked them like, hey, is there anything? And so it turned out I was going to be in Tokyo for like a week and a half, basically. And so I asked them if there's anything going on. And they said, we actually are going to have a, a watch party for the NBA finals and you should come. And I was thinking, oh, it'd be really cool. I could you know, do a story about the way the NBA is growing in Japan, which is something I'm currently working on and probably will release later in the summer and the fall. But um, they said they had a player who was going to be showing up and it turned out to be Kemba. I was like, hey, I'd love to talk to Kemba. And after working it out with, you know, through a few hoops, they said, yeah, we can uh, we can sit you guys down for lunch. And so we met at the Coast to Coast Cafe in Harajuku, Tokyo, which is a really special place if you're an NBA fan, because the NBA, it's growing in Japan, but it's not it's not really it hasn't risen above like the kind of niche underground market yet. But it's starting to get there. Um, But there's only apparently one cafe in Tokyo. And Tokyo is, you know, mind you, like the biggest city in the world. It's only one place in Tokyo where they like reliably show the NBA. And so I go to this place and there's drawings of like Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan on the wall. They have this rack in the corner that has all this amazing, unique memorabilia, jerseys. They have one of Shaquille O'Neal's sneakers from the 90s. Like it's a legitimate NBA bar. And it was really cool. So Kemba and I got to sit down and we had a great conversation. And then after that, they invited all these like famous actors and models from Japan to come hang out in the restaurant with us. So it was just a couple Americans and a bunch of famous Japanese people who I don't know who they are, but apparently one of the ones that I met is like one of the most famous people in Japan. So that was cool. And yeah, that's, that's Jared's trip to Japan. 
And beyond being an awesome experience, there was some news generated from that, at least the way that it has been interpreted by people, and I include myself in that group of people. And basically, it was the idea of Charlotte being Kemba Walker's priority. And was your interpretation largely the way that's been seen, that basically they're the heavy leaders to re-sign him? Oh, yeah. I mean... It was. I was surprised when I was when I was planning on asking the question. I'm like, I don't know what he's going to say, but probably going to give me some sort of straddling answer about like, oh, I'm looking forward to experiencing free agency and all that stuff. But I love Charlotte, blah blah blah. And he and he just like he like took a deep breath and smiled, and he just like really opened up, and it was really heartfelt just talking about how important Charlotte is to him and how he wants to spend his career there. And mind you, he had just found out that he was getting the suit. Qualify for the Supermax, like I think, like a couple days before that interview. So obviously, that's a huge part of the dynamic. But the way that he said it was, good. I mean, I was I was the one looking him in the eyes. I saw the audio somewhere. I can go back and listen to it. But like he really, truly meant it. It was not lip service. He's either an incredible actor or he truly meant it. I'm pretty sure he truly meant it. And so. I was I was really surprised because he and I and I told him like I'm really surprised because you're kind of potentially resigning yourself to never truly competing for a title in your career, in your prime if you do this and he said it was really interesting was he said you know winning is not guaranteed no matter where you go and it was a really interesting point because up until the Anthony Davis trade with the Lakers the kind of the narrative has been like maybe KD goes to New York and then he could maybe join if Kyrie isn't there and then the two of them together can try to form a really powerful team in New York but if it was just the two of them coming together and then whatever they could do with a top draft pick that team is probably not good enough to be the clear title favorite and so he might have left something really special in Charlotte and a ton of money on the table in Charlotte so that he could try to go chase that ring somewhere where he doesn't he doesn't have a clear favorite situation I think that equation has changed and I haven't been able to talk to him in the last 24 hours so I don't know how his thinking on the matter has changed but I mean, L.A. has gotten a lot more appealing and leaving Charlotte has gotten a lot more appealing now that he could be the third piece in a big three that could take over the league. Yeah, and and the idea I, I I was struck by that as well. The idea that winning isn't guaranteed, and I was and and play, people like it's something I've talked about a lot in free agency over the years. And LeBron was a catalyst for me in this back when he left in in 2010. But also various players throughout time. I mean, Paul Millsap's an example. I could go through. I could go through myriad examples of this of the power of individual prioritization. So the for me, the only way that a player can make a mistake in free agency of other than a circumstance where they just like stupidly leave a bunch of money on the table, assuming that matters to them because they think a better offer is coming. It's not. Let's exclude those situations. Like I'm thinking Nerlens or there are plenty of those. Outside of that, the only way that a player can really make a mistake in free agency is if they aren't true to themselves because they're the ones who have to live with those consequences. You know, nobody else really does. They're, you know, if that's, and, and that can be because they think they're going to get called a, a coward or a snake or because they, you know, they the money was important to them, but they wanted to to, to, to not take it to go somewhere else to win or whatever, whatever. There are lots of reasons why players might choose something other than what they want. But really, as like, and maybe a situation doesn't work out, and I think that's a part of what Kemba's answer was. But that kind of gets into this idea of like, as long as you're honest about it, like you're gonna you're gonna do well for yourself. Yeah, and you know, KD is a great comparison because that's probably the boldest free agent move that, of the of the decade, maybe even more so than LeBron leaving Cleveland. It, it certainly felt like it, and you know, KD 
I feel like just mostly just paid the price in the public discourse for making that move. He was never fully accepted by the public, I feel. And it wasn't until he basically almost maybe sacrificed the prime of his career to uh, for the love of the game and for wanting to win a title with the Warriors that he finally is getting the adoration that he deserves and the respect that he deserves. But, you know, that that shows you the kind of risk that you're taking that can very clearly affect you. I mean, it's been so apparent how much that has affected Kevin. He's just generally not been happy in the public so much because of the way that people have reacted to him. And, you know, Kemba has a situation where, like, there's no negative for him. He doesn't get blamed for Charlotte's struggles. He's able to pretty much go out and get what he wants. I mean, he told me, I can't remember if I made the story, but he told me that, like, the reason why he scored 25 this year was, one, because he had been hurt for, like, several consecutive off-seasons until, and he finally was, like, healthy during the off-season before last season, you know, or a year ago, so that he actually was able to really work on his game and improve it. But he also said that, like, Tony Parker literally came up to him before the season. He told, he said, like, Kemba, you have to score 25 points a game if we're going to have a chance. And he literally scored exactly 25 points a game. And I think, you know, he's in this position where it's like basically everyone's telling him for us to be our best. You need to just keep go out there and do everything you do. And if he's playing for the Lakers, for instance, he doesn't have that situation. He's the third fiddle there and he knows that and he has to compromise a lot of it. Obviously, I assume he probably more than happy to do that if it means he's winning rings. Um, but some guys, they just want to have the situation curtailed perfectly to them and customized perfectly to them. And they're happy with that. And I don't think it's a negative or a positive whatsoever in taking wanting to be somewhere because you're getting an extra i guess in the end if you include a fifth year from the other teams it's you know that extra 40 million or whatever it's like that's a, it's a ton of money and it's certainly diminishing return or diminishing value of money when you just get over to that you know 200 million dollar threshold it's like is there a huge difference in lifestyle probably not but it is enough to you know build a ton of schools and do whatever you want or buy a lot of jet skis and i mean a lot of jet skis i mean there's still a lot you can do with it and maybe that's what he values Right. And and that's why it's, you know, knowing the fit, like I, I've said this example before, not I don't think I've ever said this on the show about like I when I was in college and in law school, I really encouraged people that I knew to visit the schools that they were thinking about, because my the only friends that I knew that were unhappy are the ones that kind of ended up somewhere because they thought they should and that they ended up being not the right fit, not the right feel. And so for Kemba, if he knows what what he wants, if maybe maybe being the being the lead guy on a team that is not everybody needs to be like the lead guy on a championship team or be on a championship team if that's not what make and Kemba's have won in college so he knows what that's like if he if that's just not what he wants or it maybe it's maybe he wants that but it's not what he wants most more power to him and you know a big thing that he was talking about in our conversation that was really revealing to his psyche was a bit of like an inferiority complex that was really shocking but he talked about how um you know when he like when he was in college he didn't feel like he was sought after in the way that he would hope for and then he was slipping in the draft and he felt like the hornets saved him when they picked him and how that was difficult and how he always felt like he was kind of counted out in his career and you know to be fair i feel like especially this year he was looked at as a as an elite player and really made that leap and he obviously was all nba but like there's a while in his career he was looked at as just like a good score it was a really thought of as a star but it took him a while to really rise to that level and so he's kind of spent his whole career feeling like he's just really lucky to have what he has and and like i kind of like try to push him and be like well you know i mean you're now you're an all nba player it's like you should not you shouldn't have any sort of limitation to what you should expect for yourself you should expect the most for yourself and 
I don't know if, I mean, obviously I can't imagine that's the first time he's heard that. So, you know, he's well aware of that. But like, I wonder how much he's gone through this process just thinking like, this is what's been great for me and this is what's best for me rather than like, what can I, can I push myself out of my comfort zone to find something that I wasn't really realizing I was looking for in the first place? It's a fascinating question. And it's one that, as you said, with the Anthony Davis trade, will take on a different tenor now. And there is a, a, a different option potentially on the table than the ones that it looks like were going to be there. And it would be, depending on what Charlotte offers, a, a significant financial sacrifice. Now, as you said, diminishing returns are, are very prevalent there. But I mean, Kemba, he's not the, the headliner in this class, but he is now with what happened. He's become a potential like huge swing factor in this offseason. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is, I, it's someone from a team asked me who was who doesn't have cap space and isn't involved. Would you rather have? Would you rather sign Kemba Walker or Kyrie Irving right now? Uh, and we can even throw D'Angelo Russell into that conversation. But like three guys at very different points of their careers. Um, between Kyrie and Kemba, I feel like they're kind of at the same point of their development. D'Angelo obviously is a long way for him to go, and maybe he has the potential to get to where those guys are. And he, based on the performances last year, wasn't terribly far off. But you know, with Kyrie. When the Celtics acquired him, they talked about how there was this, this other level that he could get to, and he could move up to that top tier in the league where he truly is a you know a offensive hub, and he really does control everything on you know potentially each end of the court. I feel like Kemba peaking at not quite that level and Kyrie because of his age and because of some of the probably negative tendencies in his game that he can iron out and really maximize I mean there's it seems like there still is another level for him to hit but after everything he just demonstrated over the last year and a half in Boston compared to everything about the way that Kemba conducts himself and everything that he's been doing in Charlotte being a steady hand there's it's a really difficult decision to you know figure out who do you want to go for in the future i haven't really thought about it interestingly you know like from from the 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 angle that you just put on it isn't something that i've i've thought a ton about partially just because i'm i'm such a big believer in Kyrie's potential but i think the way that i would distill it just on my my first blush thoughts is the margin between Kyrie and kemba i think matters a lot more to a great team than a good team because Kyrie's amazing ability to to get his one-on-one something we discussed earlier in the context of Kawhi as well you know I don't think that makes a you know makes a a a 39 win team into a 50 win team but I do think that it makes a 50 win team more viable in the playoffs so depending on which team and which situation we're discussing I think that that you know that margin gets really compelling and then that ties in in a fascinating way with the Lakers because the Lakers hope and expect to be one of those teams where the margin between those two might actually matter. Yeah, I mean, it's, and even just not even use wins for the playoff, it's like Kyrie's that guy that gets you from the second round to the conference finals, and the conference finals to the finals. And, well, unless you're at the Celtics, in which case it's the opposite. But um, he, I think he definitely demonstrated enough last year that you can put the ball in his hands and know know that he's going to be able to get a pretty, he's, he's going to be able to execute a look. I think Kemba, I mean, I don't have the clutch numbers in front of me. I mean, Kyrie, I think I remember Kyrie's clutch numbers being pretty good throughout the year, but it, in the games that I watched at Kemba, it seemed like he wasn't having any problem getting off good looks and really attacking uh, in crunch time, too. So I, I feel like they're probably on an even playing field in that regard right now, but there's just, there's just this, pedi- or this history of Kyrie performing in the playoffs over and over and over again that, um, you know, we just don't have that body of work with Kemba, and so I understand how you feel on that regard. 
I'm a little bit more skeptical with Kemba, partially because he just doesn't have the track record. And with the playoffs, I mean, those shots are really hard when you... DeMar DeRozan's a great example here of, like, the difference between getting those shots in the regular season and getting them in the playoffs. And I'm not saying Kemba, you know, that he's DeRozan or anything like that. It's just that knowing is a lot more valuable than the uncertainty. And something else that I've wondered about with Kemba a lot is he's oftentimes had a really heavy workload in the fourth quarter itself. And my theory is that that's weighed down his clutch numbers a little bit, just because like a lot of times in, or not a lot of times, but there were a series of times where he's playing like 10 to 12 minutes in the fourth quarter. And I I can imagine it's just a lot harder to shoulder the workload he does and then be like, okay, yeah, and, and now you still have to score everything in the last two minutes and the other team knows it and they're going to put all their resources on you. Like for sure. that's, that's a really hard thing to accomplish for anybody. And especially, you know, if Kemba's, let's say he's a, even if it's a little tick down from Kyrie, that makes, makes it even harder. And that exacerbates the margin for a thing that's not Kemba's fault. Not to mention, I mean, at least this year, he's on a team that doesn't have other creators that he can, that can take the burden off of him. And so he has to do all of it. And well, well, the bad, the bad news for him is if, if that bothers him and he wants to stay in Charlotte, that's not changing. Exactly. Their, their situation is it's very hard unless they absolutely nail a draft pick. And for selfish reasons, I mean, this is for my own purposes, and obviously I would never advise a player on something like this. I would be a little bit more than a little bit sad if Kemba stays in Charlotte just because we won't learn as much about him and his game and everything like that because he is good enough, especially if he stays healthy, to make it hard for Charlotte to get the players that would be necessary to really change their lot in life. And... So for my purposes, I'd like to see him in a different circumstance. But again, I want every player to do what 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 they want, and it's it's that's it's not selfish. It's just that since I can't affect the process, I feel fine voicing my own personal preference. I voice I voice that to him, so he's aware, and I voice it on behalf of podcasters everywhere. There we go. I I appreciate that. Uh, before before we go, I will open the floor. I'm not sure that there is anything we 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 did a lot in this hour plus is there anything else you feel like you'd like to ask me or that you'd like to discuss before we leave uh do you have any fun plans for the summer i'm doing two trips one in the u.s one in europe so that's going to be exciting i've never been to europe before so that'll be fun oh Oh, um, you're in for a treat. I know. I, I am. It's it, it's just been due to everything else. It's been very difficult. So yeah, it's it's crazy. Like I I've, I've been I've been able to do some cool traveling over the years, but Europe has just never never materialized, and that looks like it's going to happen this summer. So that's pretty juiced about that. And yeah, I mean, what about you? Are you doing so? I mean, you already did a bit big trip that required some sock and shoe sales. Is that is that most of it? <laughs> I think that might be it for now. I, you know, a couple. I live in Boston, so Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, a couple times a year you know that's always uh, that's always a go-to but i don't i don't think i'm going to be doing any big traveling my my one travel goal is to go to red rocks denver i'm going to be doing that at some point this year i haven't cool. figured out when but i got some friends out there that love music so they they're forcing me to go out there and meet them at some point yeah that's that's definitely cool so um i will thank you for your time it was an absolute pleasure as always always fun buddy thanks so much to jared weiss for taking the time to come on you can read his work at The Athletic. You can listen to him on the B-Ball Breakdown podcast. And you can follow him on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. Love having him on. And I really enjoyed getting the background on the Kemba Walker piece, which has really resonated. And I think that, you know, some of that is Kemba's openness to talk about Charlotte in a way that most pending free agents do not. But also... Full credit to Jared for really getting that out of him. So 
an important part of the story and something that really did affect my way of thinking on Kemba Walker's upcoming free agency. Really did have so much to cover here and happy that Jared so adeptly was able to move between the different topics, part of why I really enjoy having him on the show. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. I understand if it's not. And if you want to be super awesome, you can leave a review both places. If you use another podcast player, you can also subscribe, download every episode. Extremely important with a show like Real Gym Radio that comes out at very different times and just word of mouth. I mean, it's all, all those things can be really important but the single most important thing you can do with this show or any other that has them is check out our sponsors for this episode yahoo daily fantasy yahoo.com slash daily fantasy use the pod pod 25 promo code for 25 dollars in free play on your first deposit cbs sports hq you can download the cbs sports app in the stream player of choice check it out betonline.ag use the podcast one promo code for a 50 percent welcome bonus true car great place to sell or trade in your car and on top of that as i talked about in the outset you can also check out the 22 hours in america nightmare podcast which is now on podcast one and of course the podcast player of your choosing you can check all those out if you have any feedback on the show good bad or indifferent danny larue nba at gmail.com is the way to do it we are now in the off season but as you know real jam radio does not stop we are weekly throughout the year and i'm excited to move into the off season stuff there's so much to talk about and a lot of great people to talk about it with i already have a few different things lined up for during the off season i am planning on doing the division by division what i call capsule podcasts still planning on doing that for this upcoming year but those will probably be later in the off season due to my travel and suddenly jared asked me about it that that'll probably i'm assuming most of those will run in september because i'm going to be gone most of september so i'll pre-record those and release them unfortunately normally not a lot is happening in the league then so that timing should work out really well and lots of other stuff to cover between now and then including the draft and early free agency and so you can check that out there and then of course nate and i do the daily breakdowns on dunked on so this is more big picture and everything else and i'll get into some team specific stuff and go in a lot of different directions for those of you who haven't listened to real gym radio during an off season i really do enjoy it and try to differentiate it from the other work that I do. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.